0: Welcome to the December edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rihanna Morgan. To mark the European Antimicrobial Awareness Day, EVJ have published a free online collection of articles on antimicrobial use and resistance. This can be found at our homepage. Tom Maddox from the University of Liverpool has kindly joined us today to discuss the epidemiology of antimicrobial resistance and to go over a few of the main mechanisms of acquired resistance. Tom is currently a lecturer in veterinary diagnostic imaging, but he previously carried out a PhD on the microbiology and epidemiology of antibiotic-resistant staphylococci and E. coli in horses at the National Centre for Zoonosis Research at the University of Liverpool in June 2007. Hi Tom, thank you for joining us today. I think the subject is very broad to cover in detail today, so we'll try to pick out the more pertinent aspects of your study. Can we start with an introduction to antimicrobials um, and look at how antimicrobials can target bacteria?
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Rhiannon. So um, obviously, we're all familiar with, with antibiotics and antimicrobial in principle. And um, they all have a fundamentally similar way of working. That, that they target specific metabolic functions that hopefully are relatively specific to bacteria and obviously interrupt those um, functions or pathways. And there's a little bit of variation, but there's four main um, targets for how the antibiotics actually work. Um, probably the one we're sort of most familiar with is um, where they act to disrupt um, synthesis of the uh, bacterial cell wall, uh, but they can also um, inhibit or um, prevent either DNA or RNA synthesis. Um, And then another relatively uh, common uh, metabolic function that they can target target is um, protein biosynthesis, so they can inhibit that, uh, or they might uh, interfere with um, sort of other crucial metabolic pathways in the uh, bacterial cells.
0: So how did the bacteria become resistant to the actions of antimicrobials. As I understand, it can be intrinsic or acquired resistance.
1: Okay, yeah. So um, a lot of the resistance mechanisms are obviously, you know, ways of either evading or combating the actions of the antimicrobials, which obviously makes sense. Um, So what we can see, again, they can There's quite a lot of variation in these, but you can probably group the resistance mechanisms into three uh, major categories. So um, one of the more common ones is that they can either um, protect or modify um, the actual target site of the antimicrobial. Um, They can work by um, excluding the the antimicrobial molecules from the inside of the cell. So that could either be um, by reducing how much They can um, come into the cell by reducing the cell permeability or they can actually actively in a sort of energy dependent process pump the antimicrobial agents out using efflux pumps. Or uh, another and probably one of the, again, relatively familiar mechanisms is um, they can produce some sort of uh, enzyme normally that um, can inactivate the antimicrobial Molecules. So the sort of most familiar example of those being the uh, beta-lactamases that destroy uh, the beta-lactam antimicrobials. And then you're right, obviously, um, the resistance mechanisms can either be intrinsic. And that means that essentially all of um, the bacteria of that particular group carry that trait intrinsically, as the name suggests, to them. So something might be like um, the fact that E. coli are intrinsically resistant to penicillin because the penicillin molecule is just too large to penetrate the... um, outer cell membrane wall, an example of an intrinsic resistance, so all the E. coli are going to have that, whereas conversely acquired resistance mechanisms are only going to be found in particular examples, particular strains of a a bacterial um, genus or a species, and they are the result of some uh, alteration to the bacterial genome. Uh, itself. So that, that's something that not necessarily every bacteria in that particular group is going to have. It's only the ones that have got the alteration to the genome are going to be able to express it. And acquired resistance, it, it can again be split down into two main ways it can arise. So it can just be uh, where we get uh, a mutation in the chromosomal genes of the bacteria that in some way uh, mediate resistance. And that's probably what a lot of people think about. They think about bacteria mutating. Um, um, but probably the more significant way acquired resistance arises is by the acquisition of um, sort of uh, foreign genetic material. And the most common sort of way these uh, genetic elements can be transferred is through things like plasmids, uh, though they can also be on um, gene cassettes and integrons and transposons and that sort of thing. And in some ways, that's, that's possibly the, the most significant uh, because obviously we can get uh, through the transfer of these um, resistance elements on plasmids or whatever, through the transfer of them between uh, the different bacterial strains, we can get emergence and dissemination of resistance in bacteria that had previously been considered uh, susceptible to the antimicrobial.
0: And how can we test the bacterial populations to see um, what antimicrobials they're resistant to and what acquired resistance mechanisms um, they've developed?
1: So obviously, you know, we're all pretty familiar with the basic principle of susceptibility testing, which is obviously just culturing the bacteria. Um, In the presence of the antimicrobial agents concerned, and then seeing if they're able to tolerate uh, growth uh, either with the bacteria, uh, with the antimicrobial in the media, or or through the use of antimicrobial discs on agar plates. So that's uh, a fairly uh, straightforward way of testing uh, isolates for sort of clinical resistance. Um, The other way that we can do it is we can um, more look for the specific. genetic elements so we can look for specific uh, resistance genes through PCR techniques or we can look for specific um, genetic elements in a variety of sort of um, molecular epidemiological methods Uh, and and then we can verify there that we've got the the, you know the potential for the antimicrobial resistance that we're interested in because it carries the gene or the genetic element or whatever Um, but obviously that is slightly um fraught with some problems in that the the genes may be carried but not necessarily expressed so it doesn't always directly equate to um, clinical resistance in an isolate but those are the two main methods either uh, genetic uh, testing effectively for the genes concerned or um, simple susceptibility testing uh, to demonstrate clinical resistance.
0: Your paper um, talks a lot about uh, two main players the MRSA and the extended spectrum beta-lactamase producing E. coli. So um, what adaptations have the staphylococcal species undergone to become resistant?
1: Okay, so um, it's obviously the one we'll think about is MRSA, so methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus, uh, and we, we sort of have... Uh, focused on uh, methicillin resistance not because methicillin itself is particularly uh, important as a drug but basically because it uh, if you if a bacterial species is resistant to uh, methicillin then it's normally resistant to most of the other uh, beta lactam antimicrobials so you know the penicillins and, and things like that so most um, methicillin resistance in um, the staphylococcal species is um, mediated because they carry um, one of a number of um, different types of gene cassettes. These are the so-called SCC-MEC gene cassettes. And they're very different types of the, um, the gene cassette that you can have of different sizes and incorporating a number of different genes. But the gene that we're most interested in is the MEC-A gene. And that encodes for um, a, a modified or an alternative uh, penicillin-binding protein. So the penicillin-binding protein is the the target for the beta-lactam antimicrobials. And and if you carry the mecA gene, then you're able to synthesize a slightly different form of uh, penicillin-binding protein, 2A penicillin-binding protein 2A. And that's uh, it's sufficiently different that it has um, a much lower affinity for the beta-lactam uh, antimicrobial molecules and obviously uh, through that lower affinity means that the antimicrobials aren't able to prevent the normal function of um, cell wall synthesis that the penicillin-binding protein uh, mediates. So that's the main uh, way we see methicillin resistance in um, uh, MRSA and uh, other uh, methicillin-resistant staphylococcal species. They can carry resistance mechanisms that are slightly different so um, they can carry um, penicillinase so a a beta-lactamase so an enzyme that will destroy uh, beta-lactam antimicrobials Um, and if they uh, carry that and uh, they sort of hyper produce it so they produce it in in large volumes then that can also be another mechanism of them achieving uh, beta-lactam resistance and probably one of the key points uh, when we're thinking about the the um, SCC MEC types that the um, MEC-A gene, the important methicillin resistance gene, is carried on is that as as well as carrying that MEC-A gene, uh, it carries a number of other genes, housekeeping genes and that sort of thing, and, and genes regulate, uh, regulating the expression of MEC-A, but it also can carry uh, resistance to other uh, antimicrobial agents. So it can carry completely unrelated genes, to completely unrelated antimicrobial agents like uh, trimethoprid and that sort of thing and provide resistance um, to to them.
0: So where do these um, MRSA species colonise on the horse? And if we find colonisation, does it directly increase the horse's risk of an MRSA infection?
1: So that's a good question. So um, the, there's not really any difference between um, where me- the resistant or MRSA um, staphylococcia carried versus the other sort of staphylococcal species. So, you know, where you normally would find staphylococcia, i.e., on the mucous membranes, um, especially within the within the nose, um, that's where you're going to find MRSA if the animal is a uh, carrier for MRSA. So, the same sort of sites. Um, has been shown in, the, in, in one or two studies that occasionally we can see carriage at other sites as well. So, um, on the skin. But but this is mainly in hospitalised horses that that seem to have carried MRSA actually on the skin, and obviously the other mucous membranes as well occasionally. Um, colonisation, I certainly don't think we can say that colonisation um, is um, a you know a direct cause or has a you know a huge um, effect on um, whether the horse is likely to develop or has uh, an MRSA infection. Um, But it has been recognised as a risk factor for developing infection under some circumstances and and most of those relate to animals that are hospitalised. So, yeah, I think it is a risk factor, but it's certainly not as simple as saying this horse has MRSA carriage in its nose, therefore it's going to get an MRSA infection. It's it's much more complicated than that, unfortunately.
0: So thinking more at a molecular level, um, how many different strains of MRSA are there, and what are the differences between them?
1: So I've touched briefly upon one of the the main ways. Um, and suppose it answers your question. There are lots of different types of MRSA, uh, and you know there are continually being new ones identified. Um, the 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 SCC mec cassette that I spoke about briefly before. Um, as I said, there's there's numerous different types of that. There's at least um, eight. Uh, or possibly even nine, actually major uh, types, and there's quite a lot of sort of subtypes as well. So identifying what type of SCC mec uh, gene cassette and MRSA isolate is carrying is one relatively crude way that we can um, look at different strains of MRSA. Um, and then there's three other main um, techniques that are used um, to, you know, look at different MRSA and, you know answer the question, uh, is this the same strain or is this a different strain? Uh, pulse field gel electrophoresis is one um, mechanism of um, characterising the strains, which I don't talk about uh, or we don't talk about in the paper particularly um, because it's a very nice technique. It's got a high um, sort of discrimination, but it's, it's only really applicable in that particular lab that you're running the pulse field gel electrophoresis in. So it's very difficult to compare results from, from different labs or results from different studies. The more um, portable or transferable characterization methods are really um, uh, sort of um, sequencing-based methods where we only actually sequence uh, relevant genes. So uh, there's one called uh, SPAR gene typing, which is where we uh, look at um, the gene, the staphylococcal protein A gene, so the SPAR gene, and we sequence that. Um, or uh, so that's just a single uh, sequencing uh, gene sequencing technique. Or um, another technique that is is using lots of different bacteria. So this is not specific to MRSA or even Staphylococcus aureus. Uh, is uh, multi uh, sequence typing or MLST? And that's where we're sequencing uh, seven um, chromosomal housekeeping genes. Uh, again, to see sort of what variation there is in them. And so there are there are all these different methods and they've all got their their disadvantages and their advantages. As I say, the SCC mech typing is probably the simplest, but, um, you know, we're only splitting things into sort of eight major groups, whereas uh, spar gene typing and MLST, there are a huge number of different strains that have been identified so we can assign the, um, the isolates to these different strains using those techniques. And although they are different techniques, Uh, spar gene typing and MLST, there's a reasonable sort of concordance between the two two methods. So if you sequence something and it's got spar gene type X, then it'll fit relatively well into one of the MLST um, clonal complexes, which is how they're grouped. So they sort of correlate to each other relatively well.
0: And can any of these MRSA strains that the horses are carrying uh, cause zoonotic clinical infections or infections in other species.
1: Well, sort of thinking about historically, um, a lot of the MRSA types that we saw in horses were were quite specific to horses and not really seen in uh, other uh, animal species, and not typically seen in people. So they were they were seen in people, but quite rare. Uh, although interestingly, they were more commonly seen in people that. Re- involved quite a lot in horses, which you, you might be able to guess. Um, so that sort of historically, so we did seem to have relatively what we would classify as, as horse-specific strains of MRSA, not totally specific, but relatively. Um, in the uh, sort of 2006-2007 um, um, period, uh, we started to identify a specific type of um, MRSA uh, which was uh, sequence type 398 so that's its MLST sequence type and um, this type was quite unusual in that it seems to be more of a, a livestock associated uh, sequence type and it was first sort of identified in uh, pigs uh, and also was identified as a cause of infections in people working with pigs uh, in the, um, the Netherlands and, and the sort of low countries in Belgium and um, And sort of since that has first been identified in horses, um, there's been a relative uh, change in the sort of background epidemiology of MRSA that we see in in horses in that the ST398 seems to be increasing in its prevalence and uh, maybe there's a slight decline in some of the other other strains. So, as I say, that type is not particularly specific to horses. Certainly in pigs, it may be in other... Uh, livestock species as well and it has been the cause of uh, infections in people, uh, predominantly people that that, that do work with livestock, Um, but there have been uh, cases uh, in uh, people that work with horses so uh, that has been uh, reported as as a zoonotic infection and it does seem to be the case that um, people that own horses um, can carry the same sc 398 MRSA as the horses they uh, look after or they're involved in the care of. Uh, So there is some sort of crossover. Having said that, those people were just carriers of these particular types of 398. They weren't uh, people that had infection. So it's colonization issue rather than an infection issue.
0: Do you think we're going to see um, an increasing prevalence of clinical infections caused by the strain over time?
1: um i think it's possible um we don't seem to see at the moment a huge number of clinical infections caused by uh 398 um it's going to be a, a somewhat of a case of if we look for it we are going to find more of it i'm i'm absolutely certain um but we, d- we don't see a huge number of MRSA infections in horses full stop i mean it's a different situation to what's in the world of human medicine, where obviously, you know, there was a, you know, what would be classes in a, an epidemic of MRSA, particularly um, in hospital situations. And we haven't got anywhere near that sort of situation in horses anyway. But yes, I think probably we are more likely to encounter ST398 infections in horses as as time progresses.
0: So in what types of horses are we most likely to find commensal MRSA?
1: Um, It's still... Somewhat undefined. Um, So a lot of uh, the issues are uh, related to still, uh, even if we're thinking, so the prevalence of MRSA infections, not that we necessarily know exactly what it is, but it it, it is low or it is likely to be low. Uh, Even the prevalence of carriage of MRSA, it seems to be pretty low in the general horse population. Um, Some studies that have looked at horses when they're in hospital Uh, and and whether they uh, are carriers of MRSA when they're in hospital. So not the same as being out in the general community. So we do have to take all of this with a slight um, sort of um, perspective on that. But um, if they're animals that um, have previously been on a premises that have got MRSA-positive animals, um, if the animals obviously that have previously had MRSA colonisation – um, I mean, those are fairly obvious sort of risk factors for a, for a horse in the hospital potentially carrying MRSA in its nasal passages or whatever. Um, previous antimicrobial um, administration probably is associated with the development of carriage of MRSA uh, during hospitalisation and. Um, They did identify in one study um, if uh, an animal was admitted to a neonatal care unit, that was a risk factor for the carriage of uh, MRSA when the horse came or when the foal came in to uh, be admitted to the hospital. So there are some sort of putative risk factors. Um, Other studies haven't really identified uh, as many risk factors or if any. So it may even be that um, these horses are not necessarily what we would truly consider uh, colonised in the sense that they have a persistent uh, carriage of MRSA in their, on their mucous membranes. It may be that they're sort of very transiently acquiring these just while they're in uh, an environment where the, when the amount of MRSA is relatively high, but they don't persistently carry these on uh, into the future, if you see what I mean.
0: Okay, so um, moving on to the second type of antibiotic-resistant Bacteria of main, you know, major interest, the E. coli's. Um, we know E. coli are a part of, of our commensal population of microorganisms found in the horse's GI tract, um, but they do also have the capacity to cause disease. So what kind of antibiotic resistant mechanisms um, have they developed and what antimicrobials have they become resistant to?
1: So. Uh, Yeah, obviously, you're right. So it's a fairly ubiquitous organism, E. coli, in horses' gastrointestinal tract and and most mammals' gastrointestinal tract. And um, it is a bacteria that carries uh, quite a lot of uh, resistance mechanisms, potentially. So we do see it quite commonly uh, in E. coli. And probably uh, resistance to the beta-lactam antimicrobials represents the most concern. Uh, So we've already talked about how Um, E. coli are intrinsically resistant to penicillin because it can't penetrate the outer membrane. Um, But there's a lot of um, acquired resistance to some of the other uh, beta-lactams. And this is mostly through the production of um, inactivating beta-lactamase enzymes uh, of various different types. Um, Probably what's even now developing as as more of a concern is where... um, the um, beta lactamases that uh, that e coli can uh, carry uh, in some cases they can be um they're able to um hydrolyze the extended spectrum beta lactam antimicrobials so these are things like uh, ceftaxime and 4 cefquinome so these are the the, the that are, are supposed to be able to um target a, a wide range of bacteria so they're extended Uh, Spectrum, um, but but the E. coli that have um, the type of beta-lactamases that also have an extended spectrum are able to degrade these ones, Um, and then we see uh, a reasonable amount of resistance, and the uh, fluoroquinolones as well. So they've got a fairly a broad, or potentially they've got a fairly broad spectrum of resistance, and they have acquired. Uh, a a variety of resistance mechanisms, but it's mainly this extended spectrum beta-lactamase resistance or ESBL resistance that is uh, sort of causing concerns at the moment, particularly within human medicine and perhaps to a lesser extent at the moment in veterinary medicine.
0: So how likely are we um, to find resistant E. coli isolates um, in horses with and without disease? And does hospitalisation also affect the likelihood that we'll find them?
1: So um, in studies that have been done looking at uh, horses in the general community without specific uh, disease, um, the prevalence of uh, an e. coli, uh, carrying an E. coli with at least some antimicrobial resistance is uh, pretty high. So probably most horses um, would be carrying some uh, E. coli with antimicrobial resistance within their gastrointestinal tract. Um, Normally, um, the bacteria concerned, uh, have got a, a, relatively narrow, um, pattern of resistance. So not resistant to necessarily a huge range of antimicrobials and, and not normally resistant to some of the more critical antimicrobials that we'd be worried about, like the extended spectrum beta-lactams or, uh, the fluoroquinolones. But certainly there's a, there's a lot of resistance in E. coli from horses, um, and then your second question or your follow-up question about um, hospitalisation, um, it does seem to be the case that uh, the prevalence of carriage of antimicrobial-resistant E. coli is is generally higher in hospitalised horses, um, but it's pretty high anyway, but it, it does seem to be even higher if a horse is hospitalised. But perhaps more significantly than just thinking about the, um, you know, just a simple prevalence, it's the, the prevalence of the... Um, the multi-drug resistance, so that's um, E. coli that are resistant to more than three classes of antimicrobials, or the prevalence of these more what we would perhaps term significant resistance mechanisms or resistance phenotypes, so ESBL resistance or uh, fluoroquinone resistance, that also seems to be higher uh, in hostilised horses. So it's not simply a numbers effect, it's also um, the sort of concern in inverted commas uh, of the types of resistance uh, um, are more concerning in uh, hospitalised horses as well.
0: And what other risk factors can affect the prevalence of resistant E. coli?
1: Um, so obviously as I sort of just mentioned so hospitalisation does seem mm. to have a relatively consistent effect in, in quite a few studies where they've looked at um, hospitalised versus non-hospitalised animals um, in um, animals outside of hospitalization uh, there haven't been uh, so many studies looking at that um, but um, as you might expect being recently having been recently hospitalized having had antimicrobial treatment have been identified as uh, putative risk factors um, and even some different types of um, Specific premises that the horse is uh, stabled on sometimes seem to be um, involving some element of a, of a risk factor. Um, and then in the hospital setting, as, as well as the actual hospitalization, um, antimicrobial treatment whilst the animal is hospitalized in some studies seems to be a significant risk factor, in other studies, not so much. So it's not, it doesn't seem to be simply that because a horse is in hospital, it's likely to get antibiotics and that's likely to result in an increase in prevalence of resistance or an increase in prevalence of specific types of resistance. It does seem to be a bit more complicated than that. And um, there's even been um, some work that has shown that um, horses that specifically are not receiving antimicrobial resistance, there does seem to be some link to the overall amount of antimicrobials used in the hospital during their period of hospitalisation that has some sort of effect. So it's likely to be, you know, as in many things, it's likely to be a fairly complex interaction of of a number of different things coming into play.
0: If you had one take-home message for us, uh, what would it be?
1: I suppose the main things that I think are are important to realise about antimicrobial resistance is... um, that it is prevalent in um, bacteria from horses, particularly if we think about things uh, like E. coli. And we are seeing in horses the the, the sort of significant concerning resistance mechanisms that people uh, worry about in human medicine. Um, and I suppose that means that we need to be Uh, aware clinically when we're treating animals with antimicrobial resistance uh, sorry when we're treating animals with antimicrobials we need to be aware of the possibility of resistance which is uh, common sense I suppose it also means that we need to be as well when we're treating animals we need to be aware that we should be using antimicrobials um, responsibly Um, as I say there's it's a complex or it seems to be that it's a complex situation that drives resistance and it's not Necessarily, uh, entirely antimicrobial resistance on it, um, antimicrobial use on its own that's the major thing, uh, but that's undoubtedly a big part of what's driving resistance. Uh, so, we do need to be um, cautious and, and prudent in our use of antimicrobial resistance. But I think probably the other take home message is that whilst we're beginning to get slightly more of a handle on things like MRSA and uh, resistant E. coli, there are lots of other antimicrobial. Um, there are also other species that can have antimicrobial resistance such as um, Pseudomonas and Salmonella and enterococcus and, and, and bacteria as well. So um, it's not just about those two sort of headline um, species or groups. And what we know about the other uh, bacterial um, species is, is much more limited. So we don't necessarily know how much of a problem we have got out there. And, and obviously, if we are going to try and limit the extent of of the problem of antimicrobial resistance which it just seem that we all need to make efforts to do then uh, we are going to need to have a little bit more research and a little bit more thinking about some of these other species as well so those would be my main uh, take-home messages.
0: Well that's a lot of food for thought hopefully this will highlight the importance of considering these resistant strains when we're prescribing in future. Thanks for your time Tom. Thank you for listening to this edition of the EVJ podcast, and I hope you'll join us again in the new year.